feel free to have a seat if you'd like. If you're here for the first time or if you haven't been here in a long time, uh, we've been going through a series on the book of 1 Kings. And as we transition from worshiping through music to continuing to worship through the preaching of God's word, I want to invite you to read the passage with me this morning. Our passage is 1 Kings chapter 16. We'll begin in verse 29 and we'll read through verse 34. Uh, You can follow along in your copy of God's word. This will be on the screen behind me as well. And it is on the message map that you hopefully received on your way in the door. So if you will follow along with um, one of those as I read our passage today. 1 Kings chapter 16, beginning in verse 29. It says this. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ithbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. In Ahab's time, Hael of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He set its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the opportunity that we would gather to encourage one another and with unity to proclaim your glory, God, that you are the only one worthy. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would be with Pastor Kevin as he serves as a messenger for your word, that you would give him words, God. Holy Spirit, I pray for our hearts that they would be soft and tender to receive the word of God this morning, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would have for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Stephen, and thank you for being in worship with us today. When you came in, you should have received a bulletin, and as Stephen mentioned, on the back of that, you will find a message map. There is a place where you can take notes and fill in a few blanks uh, as we go through the message today. And while you're locating that, let me say uh, welcome to those who are in our overflow room, or if you're watching by video, or if you're listening by podcast, uh, we want to welcome you as well. Let me give you a word of warning before we begin. I have been struggling with a head cold this week. Um, It has been bad enough that I have had an IV of NyQuil next to the bed uh, set up. I've got a little bit of a NyQuil hangover this morning, but hopefully we will make it through today okay. Uh, If you've been around here for a while, you know that before uh, I came here in 2007 that Katie and I lived in Rome, Italy. And one of the things that I did while I was living there was to do a lot of research on the history of the Roman Empire and specifically on the history of the Roman emperors, mainly because we would go to some historical site and it would talk about this emperor dedicated this in this particular year, and I would want to know more of the story. What I discovered in my research uh, was that over the several hundred years of the Roman Empire, there were roughly 70 Roman emperors. And I say roughly because toward the end of the Roman Empire, things got a little bit confusing 
Uh, there was some debate over exactly who was ruling and who wasn't. And a, and a few of the emperors ruled only for a few days, and there's not much written about them. However, 70 is a fairly accurate number. The first Roman, Empire, uh, Roman emperor was Caesar Augustus. Uh, you've read about him in the Bible. Uh, Caesar Augustus ruled for 40 years, and he was considered, generally speaking, to be a pretty good emperor. He did issue a decree at a certain point that caused this young couple to leave their home in Nazareth and go to Bethlehem, where there was no lodging for them. And uh, it was a, particularly an issue because she was great with child. However, in the end, that story worked out pretty well. Uh, the next emperor was Tiberius. Uh, he ruled for 23 years, and he was the emperor when Jesus was crucified. Uh, and then the emperor after him was Claudius who was emperor during the early days of the church. Uh, Caesar, uh, Augustus, Tiberius, and Claudius are all mentioned in the Bible. Uh, Tiberius wasn't that great of an emperor. He did a lot of evil things. But Augustus and Claudius were generally considered to be pretty good emperors. However, there were emperors after them who were incredibly evil. A Caligula, for one. He was so awful and evil that his own bodyguards murdered him. Uh, Nero is another example. You may have heard of Nero. He burned a large portion of the city of Rome because he wanted to build for himself a grand palace. And when the citizens, citizens of Rome turned against him for what he did, he then pointed the finger at this new sect called Christians. And a persecution of Christians began. Uh, Paul's death was ordered by Emperor Nero. Uh, he ruled for 13 years before he committed suicide because he knew that he was about to be murdered. Uh, Domitian was another evil emperor. Um, he had a private arena next to his palace, and there he would uh, watch um, fights between handicapped people where he would force them to fight to the death, much like gladiators, except they were not gladiators. Uh, he ruled for 15 years before he was killed by an assassin. Here's why I tell you that. Uh, if you've been here with us, uh, you know that we've talked about how the kingdom of Israel uh, existed as one united kingdom under the reigns of Saul and then David and then his son Solomon. Uh, for about 120 years, the 12 tribes of Israel were united together in one kingdom under the monarch monarchies of Saul and David and Solomon. But then under Solomon's son, Rehoboam, the kingdom split in two. Ten tribes went to the northern kingdom, uh, and ten, uh, two tribes stayed with Rehoboam in what became called the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom existed for approximately 240 years until it was destroyed by the Assyrians in 722 BC. During that time, they had 19 kings. And all 19 were bad. Or as the writer of Kings phrases it, all 19 did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The first king over North, the northern kingdom was a man named Jeroboam. We read about him last week. Uh, Jeroboam did evil in the eyes of the Lord and went so far from the Lord that God finally came to him and spoke these words. This was a verse we looked at last week from 1 Kings 14. This is God speaking to Jeroboam. 
You have done more evil than all who live before you. You have made for yourself other gods, idols made of metal. You have aroused my anger and turned your back on me. Jeroboam basically set a pattern for all of the kings in the northern kingdom of Israel. All 19 kings who followed Jeroboam would do evil. His son, Nadab, uh, ruled for only a couple of years, but he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Then the next king was Basha, who came from another family line. He ruled for 24 years, but like those kings that went before him, he too did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Then there came a king named Zimri. Zimri ruled for only seven days. However, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, although I don't think it was much because he only ruled for a week, but he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then there was Omri, and once again, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Just like Jeroboam, they were all wicked. They were all evil. However, just when no one thought it could get any worse, along came Omri's son Ahab. That's the name you heard mentioned in the passage earlier. As bad as all these other kings were, Ahab somehow managed to take evil to the next level. He was the Dr. Evil of his day for all you Alston Powers fans out there. He was incredibly wicked. In fact, while Jeroboam had done more evil than anyone who had ever lived before him, Ahab was somehow able to top the evil of Jeroboam. In fact, later on in the book of 1 Kings, there is a, a, an epitaph of Ahab that perfectly summarizes him as a person. It's in 1 Kings 21. Here's what we read. There was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. In other words, he somehow managed to top all the evil of all the kings who reigned before and after him. How did, he, how did he do this? How did he reach this pinnacle of evil in the eyes of the Lord? Let's walk back through the passage that Stephen read earlier and look at the descriptions of his evil ways. Number one, he flippantly committed sins. Look at the first part of verse 31. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat. So the writer here refers back to the first king of Israel, Jeroboam, who did evil. Jeroboam crafted these golden calves and he created his own religious holidays and he basically completely ignored the commands of God. But to Ahab, all the sins of Jeroboam who were just baby sins. The sins of Jeroboam, they were just trivial. They were nothing in the eyes of Ahab. Ahab could out Jeroboam any day of the week. He could commit all the sins of Jeroboam before breakfast, and it really didn't take much effort. He was that evil. He considered the sins of Jeroboam to be trivial. He perfected the art of sinning with zero remorse. Now, the writer here says he just flippantly committed sin. Secondly, he married an evil woman. Look at the second part of verse 31. But he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, 
king of the Sidonians. The Lord clearly said to the Israelites, do not marry women from foreign nations. And he said to the men, do not give your daughters in marriage to men from the nations around Israel. Why did the Lord command this? Because the Lord knew that if they married people who worshiped other gods, that eventually they would begin to worship other gods. However, apparently Ahab did not care about that command. And so he married Jezebel from Sidon. Sidon was a wealthy port city on the Mediterranean Sea, uh, located in what is modern day uh, Lebanon. Uh, Ahab undoubtedly wanted a treaty with Sidon so that he could have trading privileges with this very wealthy city. And we don't know if he knew all the details about Jezebel before he married her, but what is clearly known about Jezebel now is one, she was incredibly wicked, so much so that her name has become synonymous with evil. And secondly, that just like the Lord said, she turned Ahab's heart away from God and toward other gods. Which leads us to the third thing that Ahab did. He worshiped these foreign gods. And you can see that in quotes because they're not gods at all. Look at the last part of verse 31. It says, and he began to serve Baal and to worship him. Baal was a fertility god. And there were all these various rituals that were associated with the worship of Baal, trying to please him into ho in hopes that he would bring a good harvest, that Baal would bring rain, or that he would keep pests away from crops. Uh, we don't know the specifics of how Ahab worshipped Baal, but what is clear is he was not worshipping God, he was not worshipping Yahweh, he was worshipping this God of another nation. And number four, not only did he do that, but he led the nation of Israel to worship these other gods as well. Look at verse 32. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than all the kings of Israel before him. So throughout the Old Testament, you will read about the worship of Baal and Asherah. Baal was the male fertility god. Asherah was the female fertility goddess. Uh, they were a pair. They were a couple. And these nations around Israel would worship Baal and Asherah. Israel was tempted to worship these gods as well. And here's why. In their interactions with the people from the nations around them, they would talk about their farming techniques. And these individuals would talk about how their worship of Baal and Asherah played into their farming success and how they believed that Baal and Asherah gave them good crops or caused their livestock to increase or brought the rain or kept pests away. How all these elements were given to them by Baal or Asherah so that they could have a good harvest. And so all it took for the Israelites was one year where they did not have a good harvest, where they did not have rain, where the pests destroyed their crops. And if the nations around them did have a good harvest, they would look and say, well, our God didn't deliver. Their God did. Maybe there's something to worshiping these fertility gods. That temptation was always there for the Israelites. 
much like you and I have the temptation to worship the almighty dollar, where we start to think, if I can just get enough money, then I'll have the joy that's lacking in my life. If I can just get enough stuff, you know, then I will be fulfilled. If I can get the bigger house or the newer car or the nicer clothes, the big fat savings account, then that will do it. Finally, I will be happy. This temptation was always there for the Israelites. If we worship Baal, if we worship Asherah, then we can have financial success. And so when Ahab encouraged this worship and built temples and altars for worshiping Baal and Asherah, the Israelites happily switched their allegiance away from Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God who rescued them from Egypt, to these false gods. Ahab did this in a way that, that so displeased the Lord that notice here what the author of Kings wrote, that he did more to arouse the anger of the Lord than all the kings of Israel before him. In other words, those kings were bad, but Ahab was super bad. He was able to arouse God's anger like no one before him. Here's the fifth evil act of Ahab we see in this passage. Number five, he rebuilt Jericho. Look at verse 34. In Ahab's time, Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. So Ahab allowed or maybe more accurately, commissioned this individual named Hiel to rebuild Jericho. Now, if you grew up in church, if you went to Sunday school, you're familiar with the story of Jericho. Or if you watched Veggie Tales as a kid, you're familiar with the story of Jericho and the French peas telling the Israelites, just keep on walking because the walls aren't going to fall. You know the story of Jericho. You have to go back 500 years before these events to read about Jericho. Jericho was a major city, uh, and according to historians, the first major ancient city that had walls for protection. Now, according to archaeological records, these walls were nearly 12 feet high, and they were 8 feet wide. The city had a guard tower that stood 30 feet in the air, and with walls this thick, Jericho in ancient times was considered to be a city that was undefeatable, much like the Titanic was unsinkable. Jericho seemed like an impossible victory for the Israelites. However, no obstacle is ever too big for the Lord. Again, you know, you know the story. God told the Israelites, march around the city for six days straight, one time. And then on the seventh day, to march around the city seven times. And then as they completed the seventh lap, they gave out a great shout, and the walls of the city came tumbling down, and the Israelites had this incredible victory over Jericho. Um, by the way, over the years, there have been a number of archaeological teams 
that have dug around Jericho to determine what happened to this important city. And they have virtually all determined that in around 1400 BC, there was an earthquake that destroyed the walls of the city. I've said this a number of times before, but every time someone sticks a shovel in the ground in Israel, it proves the Bible to be true. And that was the case here. The walls of Jericho fell. Uh, the Israelites had a great victory. And the city of Jericho was completely destroyed. Now, on the heels of that victory in Joshua 6, here is what we read. Joshua was, was the leader of the Israelites at this point. After they destroyed Jericho, this is what we read. At that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath. Cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild the city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. This was both a warning and a curse pronounced by Joshua. Jericho was a symbol of those who opposed God and opposed his people. And so it was to remain destroyed, never rebuilt, as a reminder to the Israelites of how God had miraculously provided for them. Yet Ahab did not care. He absolutely did not care. And so he allowed, or I think insisted, that the city be rebuilt. And the prophecy of Joshua 500 years later was fulfilled when this individual sacrificed his oldest son to build the foundations and sacrificed his youngest son to rebuild the gates. Archaeologists have actually discovered evidence of this practice in many ancient cities, and the process they've determined was normally to take this young child and to place him in a large clay jar, and then to bury that child alive in this jar in the ground, and then to build the foundational walls over that. Basically as a way to say to this God, we have made the ultimate sacrifice to you, God, so protect this city from being destroyed, protect these walls from ever coming down. And then the same was done with the gates child placed in a jar, placed in the ground, the gates placed over that to say to their God, we've made the ultimate sacrifice. Don't let these gates be destroyed. Don't let anyone come and destroy this city. Uh, this was done with Jericho uh, against the prophecy of Joshua. Yet God had directly commanded the Israelites to not do this. Do not sacrifice your children. Sure, the nations around you do this as a sign of devotion to their God, but I do not want this. Do not do it. And yet Ahab here, encouraged, allowed this to happen. Ahab's evil knew no limits. And yet, here he was, the ruler over God's people. He was the king over the promised land. Ahab was the ruler over the land where God's name was to be glorified and the people were to be a light to the nations. And yet this king was so wicked and so evil that what they did was anything but 
glorifying to God. So here's our question for this morning, and the one that I think hits us right where we are. What do we do when the wicked reign? What do we do when evil comes to power? What do we do when wickedness is all around us? And we can ask this both as a nation of people, but we can also ask this on, the in, on an individual level. What do we do when evil is around us? When someone has authority over us, and yet they are not interested in doing what is right. When they're not a good moral person. I mean, what do you do when your boss is a jerk? What do you do if you have a professor who very clearly hates Christians? What do you do when your coach isn't fair? I mean, what do you do when the person in authority who is making decisions that directly affect your life isn't at all interested in what is right, but only in their selfish interest? What are we supposed to do in the wicked reign? Let me give you three things, and you can see these on your message map if you've got that with you. Uh, when the wicked reign, number one, you can write this in, remain faithful. Remain faithful. There is always the temptation to sink down to the level of those who are wicked. You know, maybe to give them a taste of their own medicine, uh, to get a little bit of retribution for what they've done. Now, certainly there are times that we need to stand up for ourselves. The Bible does not say, go be a doormat in the face of evil. But the Bible is very clear not to repay evil with evil. Notice the verse from Romans that's on your message map. See how that reads? Do not repay evil for evil. And be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. There are times that you and I will suffer for our faith in Christ. There are times that those in authority will commit evil acts against us. And God never promised that life would always be easy, but he did promise that he would always be with us. And so the best thing that you and I can do is to remain faithful and to keep doing what is right and to let God handle the consequences. You know, when you read the story of Paul's life, you discover that Paul did not write these words in an ivory tower. Paul lived out this truth in his life. Paul had evil individuals who were in power come against him time and time again. He was beaten. He was imprisoned. He was mistreated. And yet Paul was still able to say, I will not return evil for evil. I will continue to do what is right. I will not sink to their level. And I will be faithful even when the wicked reign. The first thing to do when wicked is in power is to remain faithful. The second thing is this. Don't give up hope. Do not give up hope. And let me address this both in the macro and in the micro. Here's what I mean. In the macro... I sometimes will hear church people get extremely discouraged uh, when the political winds do not blow our way. 
when so-and-so candidate gets elected to office and I will hear sort of doomsday predictions about how this candidate is the most secular, liberal candidate in the history of the United States and we are all doomed because now this candidate is in office. And they may be right. I don't know. The candidate may be the most liberal, awful candidate who has ever been elected. But here is what I do know. The church of Jesus Christ has always thrived under persecution. The church of Jesus Christ has expanded under very evil regimes. You know, I mentioned earlier uh, the persecution of Christians that took place under Emperor Nero around 65 AD. It was awful. It was bad, but it was not the worst persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire. The worst persecution took place under Emperor Diocletian in 300 AD with official edicts that Christians were to be persecuted for not worshiping the Roman gods. Hundreds of churches were destroyed. Thousands of Christians were put to death for their unwillingness to worship Roman gods. And yet during that time, The church exploded with growth. More and more people began to follow Christ. So much so that by the time Emperor Constantine came to power in 306 AD, Christianity was the dominant religion in the Roman Empire. In fact, some historians believe that Constantine's conversion to Christianity was a political move more than a spiritual move, that he wanted to bring together the fractured Roman Empire and the best way to do it was to establish Christianity as the official religion because there were so many Christians already in the Roman Empire. And all of this growth happened under extreme persecution. And so in a macro sense, we do not need to give up hope when the wicked are in power. Regardless of who occupies the White House, the gospel continues to go forth. But the same is true in our lives as individuals. Sometimes we will look around at the wickedness and evil that is happening in our world and we'll just sort of throw up our hands and want to give up hope. I want you to notice the verse that I put on your message map from 1 John. This is what John wrote to Christians in the Roman Empire who were facing all kinds of persecution and they were suffering and they were tempted to give up hope. And John reminded them of this incredible truth that you, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. John said, I know you look around and evil is all around us and you're mistreated And and there are those who speak ill of you, and some of you have been arrested, and some of you have been beaten for your faith in Christ. But I want you to remember this. You have the Holy Spirit residing inside you. You have the power of the living God inside you. So do not give up hope. Greater is the one who is in you than the one who is in the world. So when the wicked reign, reign, remain faithful, don't give up hope, and finally... When the wicked reign, be a light in the darkness. Be a light in this dark world. 
Notice the verse that I put at the bottom of your message map. These are the words of Jesus uh, as recorded in Matthew. He said, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So let me ask you this. Where does light shine the brightest? If you take a flashlight outside the middle of the day on a sunny day and you turn it on, does it shine brightly? You might notice it, but it's, it's not giving much light on a bright day. Where does a, where does a light shine the brightest? Take that same flashlight outside at midnight on a cloudy night where the stars are covered and the moon is covered and you turn that flashlight on. Does anyone notice it? Absolutely. That's when it shines the brightest. There may be a very good reason that that wicked person or those evil people are in your life. It may be that God has called you to that place for that time so that you can be a light in the darkness, so that you can share the gospel in a place that desperately needs to hear it. And instead of becoming discouraged about the prosperity of the wicked, be intentional about being a light wherever God has placed you. I don't know if you saw this news article that appeared this past week. Um, the magazine Rolling Stone uh, published a scathing piece about the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson. Uh, if you're not familiar with Mike Johnson, he is a representative from the state of Louisiana and quite unexpectedly about three weeks ago uh, has become the Speaker of the House and is very open about his faith in Christ. So Rolling Stone issued this strong critique uh, of Mike Johnson. So what was his sin? What awful thing did Speaker Johnson to do that caused this magazine, which is normally focused on pop culture and music, to issue uh, such a scathing rebuke of our new Speaker of the House? I mean, what, what were his character deficiencies or evil acts that caused this article to be written? Maybe you saw it. Apparently, Speaker Johnson has a program on his electronic devices, his phone and tablet and computer, called Covenant Eyes. For me, with Covenant Eyes, it's basically a software program that will alert someone else if any inappropriate websites are visited. His 17-year-old son also has this program as well. And so, Speaker Johnson, wanting to protect his 17-year-old son, from going to inappropriate sites, had this software put on his, on his son's phone or tablet or whatever his electronic devices are. But he did not look at his son and say, now you do as I say, not as I do. Now, Speaker Johnson said, I'm going to put this on your phone, but I'll have it on mine as well. So if you visit any inappropriate sites, I'll know it. But if I go to any inappropriate sites, you will know it as well. So again, what was the sin that Speaker Johnson committed? Apparently, it was being a good dad. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And yet, that seems like it's the culture that we live in now, where wickedness is praised and good is criticized. Until Jesus comes back, evil will always be with us. Until Jesus returns... There will be wicked individuals who are in power.
What can you and I do? We can remain faithful. We cannot give up hope. And we can be a light in the darkness.